Dr. Matthias Nordvik is a visiting assistant professor of Nordic and Arctic Studies at the Department of Germanic and Slavic Languages and Literatures at University of Colorado Boulder. He teaches subjects on Viking history, Nordic mythology, folklore, Arctic culture and society, and Danish language. Dr. Nordvik earned his PhD in Nordic mythology in 2014 at Aarhus University in Denmark, his native country. He is currently writing the book Myth and Environment in Early Iceland that's going to be published with Arc Humanities Press. Dr. Nordvik, welcome to Eurotrash. Thank you so much. Um, a little, a little uh, um, uh, amendment yes, to that. Um, is the book finished already? I actually, yes, exactly. Oh, that's I, awesome. I Even better. Finished the book. Okay. <laughs> um, now, I really am not lying when I say that I'm seriously malnourished when it comes to any kind of factual knowledge of the Vikings or Norse mythology, mm. for that matter. I realize that this kind of an intro is quickly become, becoming a, a little bit of a running gag on this podcast. Uh, but to be honest, my <laughs> ignorance is why we're having these conversations in the first place. In any case, um, since we have so many things to discuss and a very limited amount of time, I thought we might begin with an inverted question that will help us cover more ground. Besides that cartoonish hat with the horns, um, what do we usually get most wrong when we talk about the Vikings? <laughs> Actually, the cartoonish hat with the horns might not be as wrong as we no think. No way. Yeah. So, so even that maybe... thing I got wrong. That's un- that's unbelievable. <laughs> well, that's that's not on you. That that's that scholars that for about a century now have have been pointing out that the hat is wrong. Okay. But um, uh, we we do have it, it, so Vikings probably didn't wear helmets with horns in war. Uh, we have no evidence of that. But we do have these little uh, uh, sort of pins that seem to have been, uh, maybe they, they were supposed to be attached on your clothes or, uh, you know, placed somewhere in a temple or something like that. Um, these little, they have these little male heads, and from the head, there are these horns that go out and become raven heads uh, on top of them. Um, and uh, these pins are usually associated with Odin because actually several of them have, so they were like cast with two eyes, but then they scratched out one eye, which, you know, seems to be Odin. Ah, okay, because he Um, only had one eye, right? Yeah, Okay. and so we we can maybe uh, theorize that the the, the ravens coming out of his head as horns, that that would be Hugin and Munin. Um, so, so it's not entirely wrong, uh, when, when people assume that, that some Vikings might have had horns in their helmets, so to speak. Um, but to go back to your question, well, uh, I think the, the biggest mistake that we make when we, uh, talk about Vikings in the popular context, um, is this, uh, tendency, tendency to associate, First of all, Vikings with specific ethnicities, you know, the Scandinavian ones, and also associate Vikings um, or the peoples who lived in the Viking Age with, you know, ultra violence. Those are the main main problems in our understanding of what the Viking Age was. So, a Viking as as a as a person in the Viking Age is a trader, um, a raider, a warrior, um, and also a soldier, and you know also has the potential to become a 
chieftain or king or, or something like that. It's a very uh, specific pursuit, so to speak, in life. And um, the estimate is that it was only about 10% of the population in Scandinavia who were engaged with these activities hmm. that we associate with Vikings. Um, so the rest, they were farmers and just normal, everyday people, um, not particularly invested in invading England or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely you shattered some of the stereotypes that I had. <laughs> I thought, yeah, it was one big raiding party you know, uh, without the horns, but still. <laughs> just all, all these Scandinavians is constantly on boats everywhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, that's another thing that uh, that's really important to also uh, keep in mind. What we see in this uh, the Viking Age in Scandinavia and what we can see from uh, uh, genetic the genetic makeup of the skeletons that we can identify as, for instance, warriors from the time, they come from a lot of different places. They're not just from Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. They are also from Poland and from Germany and from Spain and, and so on. There's, there's, it, it is, in fact, in the Viking Age that Scandinavians start, in genetic sense, to mix more with the rest of Europe. Um, so, again, you know, this, the image of the blonde Viking should be shattered, too, because uh, the, the, the Viking might have had, you know, darker hair, uh, hmm. brown, uh, even uh, black hair. So, um, so that's that's also important to keep in mind. But there was like a culture that united them. Yes, right? exactly. Okay. Yeah, and the concept of Viking was very present. You see this in the carved runestones where you know they commemorate uh, dead warriors. They talk about this person was a Viking, and this person went a Viking. So you could both be a Viking and you could go a Viking, so to speak. And of course, the two things combine if you're going a Viking, uh, which I guess would be sort of the, uh, the, the, the term that collects both uh, ideas of like raiding distant shores and also peaceful trade and interaction of various kinds, right? Um, you, could, you could go and, and do that. And then, of course, if you went and did that, then you would also be considered a Viking, right? Mm -hmm. How is the so-called Viking society organized and structured? Who was at the top? who was at the bottom, roughly speaking? So, honestly, we don't know much about that. We know something. Um, we can see from archaeological records that there is, of course, a, uh, a stratified society. There are very wealthy people and there are very poor people. There are people who seem to have a lot of freedom um, without necessarily being at the the highest top of society. <clears throat> and then there are, of course, people who don't have any freedom at all and are slaves. Um, and then we, of course, have all the saga literature and, and uh, the material that has been written after the Viking Age describing um, society in the Viking Age. And we can only trust that to an extent, obviously, because the sagas they're written down uh, at the earliest, like 200 years after the Viking Age. So it's essentially um, Icelanders primarily writing about their ancestors. And they, they tell us about a, um, relative, like a, a steep hierarchy, a very stratified society where uh, you have kings at the top and then you have 
what would compare to knights, and uh, and then you have uh, different kinds of peasants and and you know different levels of peasants. Um, uh, after that, you know, free peasants and tenant peasants and such. Now, whether or not that is entirely the case throughout the Viking Age, and if that is uh, also applicable to all of Scandinavia, that's a good question. Because if, if we look at the archaeological material, southern Scandinavia seems to have steeper hierarchies than the northern parts of Scandinavia. That has something to do with population density and... Um, and of course, also choices in terms of like what type of society are we creating? So you could expect, for instance, Denmark to probably have what is more or less a fully fledged, quote unquote, European style kingdom already from the 700s. Also like a feudalist society. More or less. I, I, I don't want to call it feudalist as such at that point, because uh, feudalism is, is sort of developing in Scandinavia in this time period. Uh, we can see aspects of feudalism, but obviously it's it's probably like structured a little differently than what, for instance, is the case in the Frankish Empire. Um, we see, for instance, hunting parks being established in the 700s in Scandinavia. So this means that there is an elite that monopolizes hunting um, for their pleasure uh, alone. Oh, yeah, and sounds that's very royal very, already. Exactly. That's a very feudal phenomenon, right? Um, but on the other hand, it also looks, when we look at uh, the way that farms are placed and the land that they, uh, each farm has available and so on, um, that that is very different depending on whether or not we're in southern Scandinavia or in central or northern Scandinavia. And it looks like in central and northern Scandinavia, like, most of Norway, for instance, and most of Sweden, um, people were freer than than in the in the southern parts. Like again, I say with free with quotation marks here because we don't actually know what free actually translates to in a in a Viking Age setting. Um, and adding to this, we have of course the poem called Riks Thula, um, the the wandering of, or the song of Rig. Usually, it's translated to Reeks wandering, uh, like wandering around, uh, because that's what he does. And Reek is possibly a god of some kind. It might be uh, Heimdatler or Odin. That really depends on the scholar that you talk to. And this poem sets up a class structure with slaves and then free peasants and then elite and tells us basically that Rig is uh, responsible for creating those classes in society. Now, the problem with the poem, uh, we, a lot of scholars use that poem to, to, to sort of understand class structures in the Viking Age. But the problem with this poem is that it's composed in the 1300s. It could very well uh, describe more of a, a, um, a, a situation in the 12 and 1300s than, than something in the Viking Age. Um, but what stands to reason is, of course, that we do have societies with elite classes that are very wealthy compared to uh, other parts of society. And uh, those elite classes have uh, some power to decide what happens to the rest of the population. That's for sure. What was the status of the slaves and where did they usually come from? 
were they the product of these raiding parties and or uh, is there another situation um, that, that um, yeah turned them so, into slaves? So we can we can presume from uh, uh, from what we know of slavery in Europe in general, like the history of slavery, that the slaves came from many different situations, so to speak. Predominantly, uh, what probably drives the economy in the Viking Age from the late 700s and onwards is a slaving economy. We have a situation where Scandinavians take slaves in Western Europe and then they transport them through Eastern Europe and, and sell them in markets in Eastern Europe, um, maybe even as far as, as the caliphate in Baghdad and, uh, you know, in the Middle East. Um, so, so, so there's a lot of wealth that's being generated through slavery, which tells us too then that slave, slavery must have been a, a very big part of society. Now, um, there's another situation that could create a slave too that we know from medieval Europe in general. You know, you go into debt mm-hmm. and you don't have any way Classic. to pay it off. Yeah. Yes, and then you become a slave for a period. Um, and then there are, you know, other ways of not being free. Um, I mentioned tenant peasants before. Is that like a serf? uh, Yeah. um, Like tied to the land, sort of. Yeah, that's, that's what it becomes at least, right? So it's a person who does not own their own land. And so they're beholden to the Lord of the land. And uh, the trade-off of living on the Lord's land is, uh, for instance, to, um, to work for them in their fields and also to uh, um, to essentially do whatever they're asked, right? So, so that's not a particularly free situation. But the, on the other hand, it looks like as a tenant peasant, you could decide to leave. Um, so, so that's that's at least you know a, a portion of freedom. And we also archaeologically can see um, there are locations in Scandinavia where. Well, it kind of looks like uh, they have had uh, slave colonies, um, and 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 sort of like a a, uh, a situation with like little slave huts, and then an overseer hut um, that could keep them in line and 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 always uh, keep watch over them, and then these slaves they would work. Um, it's like literally sort of like a Caribbean plantation style slavery mm-hmm. where they would they would work the fields and such um so it was a it was a very very important institution for the viking age that's for sure and um we see just to to attach something to the 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 question of like where where do they come from um we see uh, a couple of uh, slaves uh, or former slaves who have carved rune stones in in scandinavia and for instance, mentions that uh, their uh, the person who used to own them gave them their freedom, and then also gave them some gold, and so that they could get set up as uh, a free uh, person. And uh, in at least one case, it looks like the person who carved such a rune stone had a German name. So um, that was in Denmark. So so that's a that, that's a situation probably where somebody from Presumably, like the Saxon area, um, 
was captured and then uh, enslaved for a while and then became free. And then he actually became a Viking after that. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. there was some upward social mobility, even if you were some, a slave. Some, like yeah. in ancient Rome, you could, be, yes. could get free. Yes, exactly. Interesting. You know, it's, the, it's really the introduction of Christianity that, that makes um, social mobility harder mm-hmm. in the feudal system because all of a sudden you have a situation where the legitimacy of rule comes from God, right? So the um, the Lord who owns the land um, all of a sudden owns the land because uh, he was put there by God, right? And that means everybody else in that uh, social hierarchy are put there by God. And that means that if you're, you know, if the assumption is that God has created natural law and all that stuff, then of course you can't break that by, by not being a slave anymore, right? <laughs> so... That was another situation that was introduced. <laughs> um, you said that there were stark differences between, for example, uh, North and South of Candi- and Scandinavia. Um, how are these societies organized? Was it like little kingdoms or clans or some sort of a proto-state or how did it all function? And were they in conflict with each other? They were definitely in conflict with each other. <clears throat> not we, you there then, okay. No, no, not at all. We we have a lot of evidence of conflict. Um, you know, because we always between... think about Vikings as this like unified force that goes elsewhere and yes. and does their Viking stuff and then comes back to their Viking home and they're just like partying, right? You know? Yes, no. In very simplistic terms. They they very much did their Viking stuff at home as well. Okay. Um, (laughs) And that's also something that's interesting to see um, when Scandinavians uh, migrate to the English area and you have a pretty big population of Scandinavians in northeastern England. uh, Those Scandinavians, they're settled. And then all of a sudden... um, we see new Scandinavians showing up from, from different parts of Scandinavia, raiding them and so on. And, and they're pissed off by that. They're, like they, they are being attacked all of a sudden by, by people from, from their own homelands. So, so there wasn't like this unified. Oh, oh so we're, hey we're guys, I thought we were place. together. What's happening? <laughs> exactly. But <clears throat> to go back to this uh, uh, question of like structures of, um, um, of, of states or polities, so the, the, the first thing I want to say is that we, we should not call them countries in the sense that we know countries today. Uh, we don't find, um, we, or we, we can't expect to find a unified idea of what it means to be in, in the Danish kingdom or in the Norwegian kingdom at the time. And this we also see very clearly expressed in the literature that we have available. Um, now to take Norway as an example, the the literary uh, uh, history of how Norway becomes Norway is that uh, Harold Feinherr, um, who sits in the western parts of Norway, in his uh, little um, chieftaincy or whatever you want to call it in Sogn, um, he then goes out and conquers uh, the other regions of Norway, or in other ways set up alliances with the the, the chieftains over those. Uh, regions, and then uh, uh, you know the the, the the literary history tells us that at, at the end of this process, he was king of all of Norway. Now, <clears throat> that's probably a stretch, a big stretch, honestly. Um, if we look at the 
uh, even the modern Norwegian uh, uh, municipality names, we can see that they seem to mirror tribal names. So Hordaland, for instance, that's that's the land of the Hardar, a tribe that lived there. Uh, Trøndelag is the land of uh, or the the law region, actually, of the Thrindir, another tribal name. And we have that across Scandinavia. My homeland also has it. Like we have Jutland, for instance. That's that's the Jutes. Um, south of there, we have the uh, we have Anglia. That's the Angles, and we have the Danes over on the islands, and uh, originally also in southern Sweden. Um, and that that's that's definitely tribal differences, and some of that is still present to this day. And, you know, it, like when I when I go to Copenhagen and speak my dialect, I get mocked for sounding like a hillbilly. That's sort of like a, 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 a minor uh, memory of, of a tribal difference, right? Because the, the languages were also different in that sense uh, back in the days. Now, we know that a, um, and now we go sort of like deep into sort of a Germanic history. We know that uh, um, there was a tendency to have what you could call, uh, I, I don't really want to use the term, but we don't have a better term for it. You could call it parliaments, um, some kind of tribal council or, or something like that, maybe an oligarchic situation where, where the, um, the upper class come together and, and, and decide things and also elect a, a ruler probably for a time. And this actually mirrors the Roman Republic in many ways. Um, and that's, that, that's a, that would be quite natural because we're dealing with uh, a population that lives right on the edge of, of the Roman Empire. And there, of course, you know, a lot of them go there and mer as mercenaries and so on. And, of course, see, well, what happens in Rome? What are the power structures here? And they seem to start mirroring that in, in, in several ways. And then eventually... As uh, as time progresses and as uh, wealth accumulates on fewer and fewer hands, we start seeing actual kings um, in in these locations. And the reason that I say that 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 Denmark probably has has a, a, a pretty solid kingdom situation going on from the beginning of the seven hundreds is that we can see that in Denmark there's there's a lot of um, public works, so to speak, uh, that require a centralized power to, to take place, to some degree at least. And that's, for instance, the, the fortified wall, Dannevirke, in, in the southern parts, which is now in northern Germany, um, that, that is built uh, as a rampart to, to, to protect, I guess, quote-unquote, the country, right? Uh, because... Um, you probably wouldn't build a wall like that if you didn't have a pretty settled idea of you know what lies behind that wall, right? Um, but on the other hand, a place like Norway with deep fjords, um, a lot of mountains, and and so on, can be more difficult to 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 keep uh, in check, and so uh, a royal power in in Norway would probably have a little harder time actually uh, maintaining their grip on on that vast territory, and this is also what we see again. This the the, the literature represents uh, this uh, uh, 
these monarchies as as set and fixed dynasties typically but when you read between the lines you can see that yeah no they, they were not related okay. <laughs> like this, this king that came after probably, that king. right exactly you have you, you have shifts in dynasties and um a, a dynasty in that time period lasts probably maximally uh, for three generations and then then you have a new dynasty introduced so um so a lot of you know the way that we think about um for instance uh, both danish and norwegian royal history uh, i would say should be rewritten in the sense that uh, we cannot expect these these kings and queens for that matter to to like descend from from the previous one even though that it's sort of represented in that way now you mentioned this a little bit already uh, by saying that vikings could be of many different ethnicities but as a slav i was always particularly confused when it came to the connection between vikings and slavic people to make matters worse um Rus in my native tongue, which is a Slavic language, I'm Slovenian, means a Russian person. But in mm -hmm. old times, that that's how some peoples refer to the Vikings, right, as well. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I recently seen The Northman, um, and the most exciting scene in the film por portrays like a brutal Viking raid on a Slavic mm -hmm. settlement. So they make it seem as though the dynamic was that of predator and prey mostly. Is that mm -hmm. accurate? Not at all. To the contrary, actually. All right. <laughs> um, so, so uh, we have in in the history of research in, in, in Viking Age, we have a big problem that is basically the Iron Curtain, um, and um, it, that so that then material... in that era they probably didn't allow scholars to just rummage around the archives and stuff. That's that's one of the things. Another thing is also that um, I'm trying trying to say this gently. Uh, uh, the, the the Russian attitude to <laughs> I love it to the 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 um, the origin of 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 the Russian state uh, has a lot to say in this. And both before communism and and during communism, there was a strong anti-Germanist sentiment in in Russia. Uh, before um, uh, uh, communism, it was a matter of, um, a, um, well, there wasn't a lot of uh, interest, so to speak, in, 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 in Viking stuff in, in, in Eastern Europe in general, of course. But in after communism, it, a, lo uh, a lot of it has to do with um, uh, World War II, among other things, and then also this... this um, uh, uh, how how the Russians are generating a sense of being very special as Russians, and the the matter of fact is that there are two kingdoms that uh, emerge in uh, the Russian area during the Viking Age. That's Novgorod and Kiev, mm -hmm. and they are founded by Scandinavians, and the Scandinavians are uh, consistently referred to as Rus in uh, this region. And that's most likely because of, they're probably predominantly from the Swedish area. And there's a region in, in Sweden called, called Roslagen, and that's probably where uh, some of these rulers came from. Um, and so this Ros um, becomes 
the local uh, nomenclature for uh, for Scandinavians, Scandinavians there. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, there's been like the the differences, so to speak, between the Scandinavians and all peoples, pretty much uh, in in what is uh, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, have been played up to an extent that is unreasonable. Um, what the way that I think we should actually see the cultural connections, you know, barring language, but but cultural connections is that uh, from from what is uh, Western and Christian Europe, like from that border, so to speak, um, and then East and North, all of that is a continuum of 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 uh, I wouldn't say the same culture, but similar cultures. And we see that very uh, clearly in the interactions between Scandinavians and uh, the peoples on the Eastern Baltic, the peoples in Poland, the peoples in the Russian river systems. Um, it's very, very easy for these Scandinavians to navigate uh, the social situations over there. And that mm-hmm. will tell you that the, the that's probably because there are a lot of similar similarities. Right? There are so many similarities, uh, religious similarities, for instance, um, the way that people live in housing, the, the way that the society is structured and so on. It's, it's not hard for a Scandinavian to, to integrate into that, uh, uh, that social situation. And, um, again, an overlooked little fact, um, there are many, many Viking kings and uh, chieftains and so on uh, that constantly are casually referred to like, oh, he went to Russia for 10 years. Oh, he went to exile in Novgorod. Um, or uh, um, this and that person married the princess of, uh, of the Opotrites or the Vent or uh, so on. Um, and we also know that Vladimir I as is the, the presumed founder of, of the medieval Russian state, he went in exile in Scandinavia for about 10 years too. Um, we know that Olaf Tryggvason, the uh, king attributed with uh, Christian, uh, Christianizing uh, Norway, he probably grew up in Russia and, and so on and so forth. So, so what it basically comes down to is that there's a lot more interaction between Scandinavia and Eastern Europe uh, than... Uh, we have cared to admit in the history of scholarship over the last 100 years. And, um, you know, you, you can't just go like St. Olaf does in, uh, in Norway after the Battle of uh, uh, study. You can't just, and he goes to Novgorod in exile. You can't just do that if you don't have really, really good friends and family there, right? So um, we should see this whole... Uh, northeastern region of Europe as as a more integrated region than than not, you know that that's really how we should perceive all, uh, this. Uh, the Scandinavians are very integrated with the populations in 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 the east, and we also see that when the Arabs are describing Rus and Sakalipa, the the Slavs, uh, quite often they don't distinguish. They're just like they're all the same. Like they, they obviously they they speak different languages, but 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 to the to the Arabs, they're just like the same population. Speaking of Arabic accounts, an interesting account of the Volga Vikings comes from the famous Arabic diplomat Ahmad ibn Fadlan, who described their appearance like this: Each is tattooed from the tips of his toes to his neck, 
with dark blue or dark green designs, and all men are armed with an axe, sword, and long knife. I have never seen more perfect physical specimens, tall as date palms, blonde and ruddy. However, he also added that they are shameless and vulgar, especially when it comes to sex, which he said they perform openly, even in groups. I mean, if that's true, that just makes them more cool in my eyes. Um, these people <laughs> knew how to have a good time. I mean, um, also, this doesn't seem like a very stiff or prudish society, if that's true. Yeah, so there's a couple of things to say about Ahmed Ibn Fadlan's um, account. Um, we can see very clearly that, of course, what he uh, what is what is operating in the back of his mind is uh, how much haram is happening in the location <laughs> he's listening. apparently a lot <laughs> apparently a lot and he does he he evaluates the different peoples that he interacts with uh, uh, on the basis of how much haram they're doing yes okay. exactly so so there are for instance some muslim turks that he describes where you know they also do things that are definitely not okay uh, uh, from the islamic perspective and then he has like but they also have all of these good uh, sides to them, so so it's okay that they did that thing and so on. Um, that's part of his mission when he's traveling in in the Russian region to to give a report on the status of Islam there, uh, because Islam is you know pushing northwards at the time. Um, when it comes to these th this description of of these Vikings, um, there's something to be said for the fact that. Every time he mentions artifacts and and things that we can uh, correlate with archaeological evidence, he's on point. Like, you know, the, the way that he describes their uh, accurate. The, yeah, yeah, the the dress, the weaponry, and all that stuff, um, the jewelry that the women wear, and so on. We find that in the graves. His his description of this chieftain's burial. Uh, is almost you know, like one-to-one -one mirroring uh, uh, such boat burials that we find in Scandinavia too. So um, a lot of scholars have accepted sort of like his descriptions of the rituals and all that stuff. And then we have these, you know, physical descriptions. He talks about the tattoos and that kind of stuff. And this is where scholars are more like, hmm, we don't know if we want to trust him on that. And my point is then, if we trust him on all the other stuff, why don't we trust him on this too? Like, <laughs> uh, uh, Makes sense. They could, yeah, they, they could very likely have been tattooed. Um, I've written a, a research article on that um, that is currently in peer review. And, um, and one of my main uh, arguments is that uh, we actually have a lot of terminology in the saga literature from Iceland of darkened skin. Um, there's there's a lot uh, there, there are a lot of words that indicate that somebody is darker uh, than the average Icelander, presumably. Usually, these uh, individuals come from Norway or Denmark, and so uh, do we chalk that up to sort of uh, um, you know physical appearance based off your genetics? Well, yeah, there are plenty of examples that, you know, seem to specifically state that, for instance, darker hair, as I mentioned before, that's something that does seem to be uh, become more predominant among the, the itinerant population in, in, in Scandinavia in the Viking Age. Uh, so Vikings, for instance, traders and so on. But 
Aside from that, there are also some words that specifically signify intentionally darkened skin. And this is where tattooing then becomes a relevant subject to discuss because uh, these same words are used for, um, in, in, for instance, Skaldic poetry uh, to talk about uh, the ship sides that have been painted. And so they also use those words for people's skin. And that seems to be very close to a situation where somebody has intentionally painted their skin, either uh, on the surface or by, by pricking soot or ink into it. And so I think to some degree we can accept um, Ibn Fadlan's uh, explanation, his claims here. Whether or not they're, uh, they're, they're so tall, that's that's another sort of iffy question. We know that um, I think I think the, the average height in the Viking Age is uh, 150 to 65 um, centimeters. Oh, that's quite short i mean okay for modern yeah it is but but you know people were shorter in in yeah. uh, in back then in general uh so so you know i don't know if that's particularly different uh from i, I don't know what the average height in in the caliphate is for instance i would actually assume that a, that a guy like uh fadlan who probably comes from the elite uh, uh of society he was probably taller than that average because of food because, and nutrition. Yeah, exactly. That, that has something to do with the nutrition you have available from, from being a child, you know, uh, when you, from the time of being a child. So, um, you know, that, that might be a bit of an overstatement, but on the other hand, maybe he was interacting with particularly tall, uh, Scandinavians, uh, that, that is a possibility too. Maybe he, he was looking at, uh, at, 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 you know, elite individuals who had had uh, proper nutrition available to them. We do have uh, some examples of incredibly tall uh, uh, Vikings too. There's a, a skeleton from Denmark where it's a male Viking warrior who, by the way, had filed teeth. Um, he was... What, sorry? Uh, sharpened teeth? Uh, not sharpened, but filed. Like there's like a they they filed a groove in in his teeth. Um, so then they don't look like little little points, but they are sharper in the sense that the the uh, the, the last little bit of uh, the teeth is is like uh, thinner. So it oh, must okay. have been sharper. Yeah, yeah. And he he could, he could probably use that to bite yeah, off people's yeah. flesh. Um, Great stuff. And yeah, <laughs> again, that's also sort of charming example. Fella. <laughs> right, <laughs> he was he was killed in uh, you know very violently. So yeah, <laughs> okay. he was probably a charming. Sounds fellow. about right. <laughs> yes, um, there there are several examples of of filed teeth from from the Viking Age, and they look like they were you know Viking warriors. So again, that's another type of body modification that could sort of okay. support the idea. Okay, not to be too made. naughty, but what about this um, sexual n norms? Were they really as open as he says, or is that some sort of an exaggeration because of his uh, strict standard? Um, Do we know anything I, about that? So, so there are several things to be said for that. So, one thing is that the type of community that he's describing is that warrior, male warrior uh, community, um, and we we all know that 
you know, when a bunch of men get together and start uh, getting ideas about things, uh, then that looks very different from other parts of society, right? <laughs> uh, no so that, that's one there. thing to keep yeah. in mind. <laughs> that's one thing to keep in mind, uh, that they could be partying a lot more out there outside of Scandinavia than they did in Scandinavia. Um, on the other hand, uh, we, we can't discount the possibility that the that you know sexual norms back then were different um you know even even in early christianity we can see in the laws in scandinavia that you know such things as uh uh um, reserving your body for your husband and all that stuff that doesn't really there's not a lot of law material on that in in the medieval laws uh, like, for instance, the Jutlandic law in, in Denmark uh, stipulates that if a man and woman have been living together on the same roof for three years, we can consider them married. So that gives you about three years where you could do whatever, I guess. That's pretty chill. <laughs> That's nice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and in the same way, the, the laws also stipulate such things as if a man has made a woman pregnant, um, her uh, brothers or other male fam family members had the right to go to that man and tell him to to marry her. Yeah, there's no punishment for the woman, like there, there's no judgment on on her sexual activity. Yeah, it's only if she gets pregnant then then the man has the responsibility that, that he has to fulfill. So so that of course opens up the possibility for you know a lot of different interactions uh, sort of on the sexual levels. Uh, I'm sure there's been a lot of judgment too, of course, of, of, of various things and people wanting to to keep both men and women uh, in 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 sort of fixed uh, uh, situations, right? But uh, we can't um, we can't exclude the notion that there's probably like polygamy of various kinds, and um, Again, there's also something to be said for which part of society we're dealing with. You probably have some some greater measure of freedom in uh, in acting uh, the way that you want when you belong to the elite uh, elite compared to you know the, the the lower social strata, right? So so I I would not put it past them to you know do those kinds of things. So. So, I, I actually, I, I, I can believe it. <laughs> that's really cool. Um, so Ibn Fadlan's accounts are probably more accurate than the movie Northman. Is that what we're saying? I would say. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, I didn't ask you, what, what did you think of the film? Have you seen it? I've seen it. Um, I am and disappointed, honestly. Oh, wow. Uh, so, okay, cool. Yeah, so the, the costumes, the settings and all that stuff are really cool. Um, the narrative to me is just another movie yeah, about vi violence. Yeah, violent Scandinavians in the Viking Age. And, you know, you mentioned this raid on that Slavic uh, village, and that's a great example of how it just stereotypes uh, what Scandinavians were in the Viking Age, and also, for that matter, Slavs. Um, so I think that's, that's a disappointing feature of the movie, and I'd like to see. Uh, people who uh, create media about Vikings uh, to be more creative in and more discerning of the, the social and historical reality, essentially, because like, why don't we have a Viking Romeo? Like, <laughs> why 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 is it always the Italians who get to be the lovers? Why can't we Scandinavians also? That's have a, a good fun? question. I hope Hollywood <laughs> is listening right now. 
<laughs> me too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you're, you're, I mean, you're lucky that I haven't seen the TV show, The Vikings. So I, I'm not going to make you <laughs> state your opinion on that. Um, but yeah, my father keeps convincing me to watch it. Uh, but it's like I six mean, seasons or something, right? Yeah, it's very long. Um, I, I'd say that, you know, it, it's a fun watch. Okay. And again, that's, that's something. I, yeah, 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 but again, you know, it's it's again presents the same stereotype of yeah. the the violent Scandinavians. Okay, so let's move on to mythology and religion. To be honest mm-hmm. with you, I tried educating myself a little bit on Norse cosmology, but got lost pretty quickly each time. I do remember a couple of the gods, such as Odin and Thor and Loki, obviously. And something about nine worlds and a big tree, but that's mm-hmm. pretty much it, unfortunately, I'm sad to say. It all seems quite unique and quite complicated. Um, could you distill this, at least the origin myth, for dummies such as myself a little <laughs> bit, if you would be so Okay, uh, I could try. Thank uh, you. So, so I, I want to preface this with the, the, uh, the major problem that we have, and that is that all of this stuff is written by Christians. Um, and, uh, it's written, not just written by Christians, but it's also written with a specific purpose by Christians. The primary Christian to have written this stuff is Snorri Sturluson, Icelandic chieftain in the 1200s. And it is very obvious that when you compare, um, the, his description of Nordic mythology with, um, available religious texts at the time on Christianity, and then also, uh, Mediterranean philosophy, some Platonic philosophy, for instance, that kind of stuff. You can see how he is actually synthesizing a lot of, of Christian and uh, Mediterranean mythology, uh, not mythology, philosophy, um, about the, uh, the creation of the world and all that stuff to fit into this description of Nordic mythology. But we have some poetry as well that... Um, that is more fragmented in its way of representing um, the creation of the world and the cosmos and all that stuff, and which probably is more on point in terms of what people believed in the time. So there's definitely a world tree that um, that seems to be sort of the center focus uh, of the cosmos. And now you said nine worlds now not in this idea of nine worlds that's a that's a modern uh, scholarly interpretation um it looks more like back then they would have been like well we're on this level and then there's an above and a below okay and a very not, classical not, kind of yes exactly set, setting. yes yeah. uh that's usually how humans think about the yeah. world like globally so and so what lives in the world besides humans is, of course, you know, all these animals and so on, and then there are spirits and everything. So uh, rocks and trees and rivers and mountains and fields and all the things are inhabited by some kind of spirit that controls them, right? And this is what we see in the folklore of Scandinavia that's still present today. You know, you have elves everywhere. You have uh, what we call Nisse, um, these little um, Egenius Loki of of the of the farm, right? They they compared to the Roman Lares, right? 
um, you have a, you have a troll or an evil spirit of some kind that that uh, will try to uh, take you into the river or uh, throw rocks at you from the mountain and so on. These are spirits that that inhabit the world around us. So that's probably like the world that those Vikings walked around in. And then they had um, sacred sites of various kinds. We can see this in the place names. They're locations that are called Thor's Arable Land or Odin's Mountain or Freyr's uh, Grove, uh, all over Scandinavia. These would have been locations where they uh, presumably, well, expected to find that particular deity. And uh, they would have temple sites where they did rituals, uh, presumably, again, um, directed mostly towards uh, Odin, I think. Um, that's, that's the general assumption that we have. And then we also see uh, ritual activity in in uh, bodies of water, uh, lakes, bogs, rivers, and so on. Um, sacrifices that were probably made to some other deities that that they perceived as existing in 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 those uh, locations. So um, when we then go to the mythology as it's described, right, we get an entirely different idea of, uh, about. Um, what the world was like for them. So if we trust that idea, then um, then I think we're actually going astray. <laughs> what we can see in the mythology are, 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 are sort of little elements of, of what I've otherwise described based off of uh, archaeology and place names. Um, um, and, and, and it's certainly there, but it's, as I said, it's interpreted through this lens of, of very hard Christianity, actually. And the, the nine worlds uh, aspect of that is, is, is also infused from Christianity. We, we see Snorri, he describes how hell it, it rules over the bottom level of nine levels uh, in the underworld. And, you know, what does that sound like? Sounds quite familiar from, uh, from right. my Bible school. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's very much the, the classical Catholic idea of, of, of the, the levels of punishment and hell and all that stuff, which, you know, by the way, is, is inherited from, uh, from Greek Roman religion, um, uh, to an extent at least. So it's, it's not like it's like just Christian, but um, but the way that it finds itself in in, in, in the Nordic mythology is probably through uh, uh, Christianity rather than some older uh, connection between belief systems. Now, um, Snorri gives us uh, a range of deities uh, that comes out to about twelve, I think. Um, he again represents the uh, uh, <laughs> the the uh, uh, um, uh, the situation of the gods uh, in in light of Christianity, we have Odin as sort of like a false Jesus, all father, God figure, and then you know his disciples <laughs> essentially, and we have the most prominent disciple is is Thor, who uh, who goes out and and kicks ass everywhere, um, <laughs> but um, but. You know, again, this is skewed towards um, a couple of things that say, one, what Snorri is representing, the, the elements that are true, so to speak, or 
pro possibly authentic uh, uh, come from the upper strata of, 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 of society in, in, in Iceland in particular, which could be very different in Norway, it could be very different in Denmark and Sweden and, and so on. Um, and uh, he's also representing this from, you know, the perspective of his own locations. So Borkafjörður, um, where he uh, mostly operated in his lifetime, was a location where Odin seems to have been a particularly prominent deity. But there are other parts of Iceland where Freyr, for instance, was, was more important. Again, um, this sounds a little bit like ancient Greece, where one city-state yeah. championed one god and another yeah. championed another. Yeah, that that is probably but, the so situation. You did have a pantheon of established deities, probably, so to speak. Yes, the say? question is the question is just how fixed is that pantheon, mm -hmm. and can we trust that the literary representation of that pantheon really reflects the pantheon that people had in their minds now so i i've for for just like hobby reasons i have uh, uh, collected uh, the names of all uh sort of supernatural beings that we find in the germanic realm that includes what we get from literature what we find on votive stones from the Rhineland from the first couple of centuries uh, uh, after the year zero, uh, other kinds of you know texts that where we can sort of assume that they're actually talking about an ancient deity rather than a king or something like that, and we end up with something like 800, 800 different you know names for 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 supernatural beings that people in this general northern realm have believed in or communicated with or whatever they did um, in a period of about, well, a thousand years, right? Now, that's a very different picture from, from what Snorri Sturdeson gives us, right? And so that should tell us then that, that there's a lot more variation than, uh, than the literature gives us uh, reason to believe. And... Um, does that mean then that we can't use this literature to to say, well, the Vikings probably believed this? No, that that that's. I'd say you can still use it. You just have to be incredibly cautious. Like for instance, the popular idea of like, oh, the Vikings believed that the world was created in this like conflagrance of like of fire and ice and all that stuff. No, they didn't. Like <laughs> that's like that's a fantasy that that Snorri has in Iceland for obvious reasons, right? Um, some of it is directly borrowed from from classical uh, philosophy, uh, like the idea of different elements coming together to create a perfect environment for 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 humans to exist in. Um, that's something that he has borrowed directly from Plato. But then, you know, there are also elements in his description of how, you know, we have these rivers that flow and then they crossed over and, you know, we have fire and, and, and sparks from Muspelheimer and all that stuff. That's obviously, you know, someone observing a low effusive eruption in Iceland because that's exactly how that, that works. You know, you have these rivers of lava that then... Uh, become pahoehoe as as it's called in in uh, in in uh, volcanology and um and so he he describes a very icelandic situation actually 
in in the mythology and it's you know comparably if we go to finnish mythology in kalevala right we see vainamoinen he walks around and and he sows trees everywhere you know um as as part of creation and that looks like much more likely a much more likely scenario for sort of like a creation mythology uh, or myth uh, for for you know Scandinavia, Eastern Scandinavia, and Southern Scandinavia, rather than something that has to do with ice and fire. We also have the poem Verluspau or the Prophecy of the Seeress, where it kind of looks like in the beginning of time when the world is created, the gods are actually plowing fields because there's like this phrase that goes, uh, they, and that means something like they, uh, they raise the ground. Now, this could either be a situation where earth is taken out of the ocean by the gods, which is a very common mythology, um, uh, sorry, a creation myth around the world. Usually it's some kind of bird that does it, but uh, we, we, we find different animals that are capable of, you know, diving into the ocean or diving into a lake uh, and then picking up sludge, like a beaver could also do it, or a muskrat um, in Native, Native American mythologies, for instance. Um, it could be this Nordic uh, situation could be mirroring that, or it could be literally plowing. Um, and if that is the case, then maybe we're actually dealing with an element of southern Scandinavian mythology where you have a lot of plowed fields everywhere, and, and it would make sense that they're like, well, this is how we create a world by plowing and sowing our, our fields. And then, you know, then life happens. Right. So we also see these little elements here and there in the mythology that, that seem to connect to different parts of Scandinavia. So it was all much more varied and nuanced than it's usually portrayed. Absolutely. So it wasn't yes. like the Olympians in ancient Greece where you have like 12 principal deities and well, again, you know, that, that that situation in ancient Greece is also created out of literature. Yeah, um, of course. It, <laughs> Hesiod, right? He, uh, he writes yeah. uh, Theogony, and, and, and then we believe that that is how the Greeks, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah uh, but but when, when you look at local temple sites, when you look at uh, ritual activity and all that stuff in ancient Greece, you'll see that there's a lot more variation than that literary situation that we get, right? And I'm, I'm sure that, uh, um, you know, Zeus was, was only a, uh, the top deity, so to speak, of the pantheon in some situations, in some locations, and at some times, right? Whereas, you know, you could go elsewhere, and and you could you could find a I don't know Artemis or Athena or or Hephaestus um, or, or someone else being being a more po uh, prominent deity. So so that's something that that we should also keep in mind when we think about that in terms of a Greco-Roman religion. How did the Vikings usually worship their gods? And was there any human sacrifice involved? Yes. There's a lot of human sacrifice, actually. Oof, okay. <laughs> uh, human sacrifice is a very common phenomenon um, right. in general. Yeah. Uh, what, what is actually interesting to see uh, historically 
the anomaly uh, is the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. The Romans don't sacrifice humans. Um, I mean, they, we have that but, Colosseum business tying people to the. See, yeah, that's hosts. that's where I was. I was just gonna say that, but and then, that's you know, probably yeah, that's not the same, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, conceptually, to them at least, it was not the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we can always question that, of course. And you know, uh, you know, the games, uh, the gladiator games, do seem to have come out of a, a an an original ritual situation right? uh-huh. where, where where someone had to be the sacrifice yeah. to the gods, right? Um, what we see in Scandinavia, so so obviously we don't have the full picture of 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 the uh, the, the the entire spectrum of of, of reli- religious and ritual activity in Scandinavia again because our source situation is so sparse. Um, so when you ask how did they they worship their gods, we can see on some runic inscriptions that there are invocations of the gods. And of demons and uh, other beings, uh, for all kinds of purposes, for love, for for hate, um, for protection, and so on, for for illnesses. Um, so that was one way that that we can that we know uh, concretely that they worshipped their deities, and this mirrors the way that people worship deities across the planet. Again, um, we know that there were. Temple sites. Now, m- many of my colleagues in archaeology, you know, will cringe when I say temple uh, because it's a long-standing discussion in the the, the, the study of uh, pre-Christian religion in the north uh, whether or not there were there were temple sites. You know, Tacitus, the Roman uh, historian, who's describing uh, giving the earliest description of Germanic peoples, more or less. Uh, say, says that they don't have temples; they worship under the open sky, and blah blah blah. And that seems to be a romanticizing aspect to his uh, description of them, rather than something that actually occurred. Uh, they did have what my colleagues in archaeology would prefer that I call cult houses. Mm. Um, I call them temples because that's what they were. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, they did have that. Some of them look more like a um, a space in a farm, essentially, that was then at some point transformed into ritual activity and then perhaps transformed back into everyday uh, activities. Um, but other, other locations are distinct temple sites where the building is only used for ritual purposes. That is a temple. Um, and... What we find in in those locations uh, is a multitude of, uh, of of objects that signal different religious activity. We have one very prominent uh, um, ritual object is the so-called gulgupa, which is that word translates translates to golden dude. Uh, golden dude. It's these, yeah, golden dude or golden guy. <laughs> so this. These tiny gold foils that have a stamped image of either a man or a man and a woman or an animal, or some of them actually like look like demons, like they're very sort of like uh, contorted figures, and yeah, spooky looking. There are thousands of those that have been found across Scandinavia um, in in these locations that are very distinctly for ritual purposes. And we don't know exactly what they use them for, 
but you know we can make a bunch of guesses about maybe they have some connections to fertility maybe to hunting maybe to protection against demons uh and so on and so forth now in these uh locations that we have identified as like temple sites and such we also see a lot of evidence of animal sacrifices and some evidence of human sacrifices and beer brewing also seems to have been a an important component to this and so the alcoholic drink um going back to the mythology this is where we can use the written mythology from iceland uh, to better understand the role of for, uh, alcoholic drink in ritual uh alcohol and mead and beer are, are important uh elements of nordic mythology in different ways the, the most prominent one uh, is the myth about uh, how odin retrieves the, the mead of poetry right and we see the skulls the, the viking poets referring to the mead of poetry as the thing that gives them their creative energy right um so 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 that's that seems to be uh accurate that 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 alcoholic drink was an important feature in rituals in in scandinavia especially when we then also see you know evidence of beer brewing in locations that have you know evidence of other rituals um this probably comes from the the roman uh um uh, uh, drinking rituals actually because the earliest evidence of this seems to correlate with the introduction of the the drinking bowls from rome um they come in the uh first couple of centuries uh after the year into southern scandinavia we, f- we start finding them there we find roman glass as well evidence of wine and such things so what we're dealing with is an elite that again is is uh, emulating what the romans are doing there's this much more takes- roman influence um, present more. than mm-hmm. what I stereotypically or traditionally uh, yes. believed with with the uh, Nordic civilizations or, or Vikings. Yeah, but that's that's, that's the thing. That's quite surprising. I, I, I I'm, I'm I'm highlighting it too because I want people to when they're hearing us talk about this, I want them to be aware of that because again we have had a situation where Germans didn't like the idea of have, having been culturally influenced from Southern Europe, so they've done everything they could to sort of erase that past, right? Um, and and the truth is that what we see from the year uh, from well, the first couple of centuries before the year zero actually. What we see is a Scandinavian elite that more and more and more uh, try to do what the Romans do. And the dynamics of, of Scandinavia are intricately linked to what happens in the Roman Empire. What we see, for instance, in the 400s is the emergence of bracteates, these gold medallions that have like runes on them and very um, almost psychedelic imagery. Of, of of what looks like uh, somebody uh, it's a it's a man riding on a horse but his body usually isn't there it's only his head on the horse and then there's a raven that comes out of his uh, his hairdo so he's got sort of like a a, a, a mullet kind of thing that then turns into a, a elvis uh, raven on his head or he's talking to a raven and this imagery seems to mirror imagery that we find in in nordic mythology and in, in the literature uh, that is associated with Odin. And we know that these bracteates, they are the sort of the Germanic expression 
of the Roman uh, uh, soldier medallions that they would have on on their armor. And so what seems to happen is that we have Scandinavians who go and become mercenaries in the Roman armies, and then they take elements, important elements from from that situation uh, back home with them, and then they gain their own life in, in a new ritual and mythological situation in, in Scandinavia, and then become very significant for spiritual life in Scandinavia. And so this happens with drinking rituals, it happens with these uh, medallions, and it also happens with the development of, of the Odinic cult that definitely is prominent with the elite and with the warriors in Scandinavia from the 400s and onwards. And this is probably also what is the center focus of a lot of the temple uh, rituals that are happening in the Viking Age in the 700s and so on. Um, adding to this, we have some other um, uh, uh, non-Scandinavian descriptions of, of rituals, right? We have Adam of Bremen and Tietmar of Merseburg who describe these uh, these huge rituals, sacrificial rituals, uh, that happened every ninth year. In um, Tietmar describes it in Denmark, and Adam of Bremen describes it in, uh, in, in Uppsala and Sweden. Now, we haven't found specifically sort of the, 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 uh, the evidence of these major sacrificial rituals as such, but uh, archaeologically we can see at the site in Uppsala, that there was a lot of ritual activity and there was a lot of uh, sacrifices going on. Um, they've, you know, uncovered this one kilometer long uh, processual road with uh, pillars next to it, where it looks like there was like bones around the pillars and such, which you know obviously seems to be mirroring perhaps you know that uh, that ritual sacrifice situation. Um, so, so, so we do also have a little, a couple of other literary accounts here and there that, that can help us understand, um, uh, the, the ritual situation, but, you know, the question is, of course, did they have a ritual, uh, the same ritual every, uh, Christmas or Yule as it's called in Scandinavia? Um, a lot of people would say, yes, of course they did. The only problem with uh, with that is that the literary uh, descriptions that we have of that are actually mirroring Christian rituals. So we, we do see um, some references to to Yule as as a Viking Age ritual of some kind. We see, for instance, um, a, in a poem about Harald uh, uh, Feinhair um, that is describing when he when he's like out, you know bringing the country together in Norway, he, uh, uh, it says something like, uh, he will have to celebrate Yule uh, on the ship or actually drink Yule on the ship because, uh, because he's constantly fighting somebody, right? Um, that seems to be a reference to, to the Yule ritual. The only problem with that is that it seems that the word Yule actually could be ref referring to multiple ritual situations. It's only you know later on that it becomes attached to a ritual situation that happens in December. So um, we don't know much else, really, 
we we can only like guess in terms of like what kind of calendrical rituals did they have. Obviously, they would have some, right? Obviously, they would come back to a situation every year where they had a ritual, especially for you know blessing fields when you're sowing and 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 all that stuff, and again for harvest as well, and and so on and so on, but. Uh, the literary descriptions that we're dealing with are, again, very tendentious and they're, they're obviously written by people who didn't exist in the time period and and only had cursory knowledge about mm-hmm. what, what it actually would have been like. Now, we're jumping back and forth a little bit, but you mentioned alcohol and uh, psychedelic imagery. Mm-hmm. And that made me think about that old trope that... We see in all of the video games and movies and, you know, popular culture of the berserker or berserker mm-hmm. mode where yeah. warriors go into a rage, not being yes. aware of what's going on around them. So is that a cliche or is that an actual thing? Let's clear <laughs> it up once and for all. Um, so the origin of the idea that that these berserkers were uh high on mushrooms and especially the uh what is it called the 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 amanita i think it is uh the red one with all the white dots Mm -hmm. is magic um, mushrooms in a way right well no that's not a magic mushroom that one it's poison that that's that's a mushroom that will kill you okay (laughs) so uh um no, I'll come back to the magic mushrooms in a bit. Yeah, um, <laughs> fantastic! Can't wait. <laughs> so, the uh, 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 the the idea that they would, you know, uh, somehow ingest this uh, mushroom and then go into berserker rage comes from a 17th century scholar in Denmark named Thomas Bartolin, uh, who is right. Uh, he's like writing this thesis on Odin's awesome Danish warriors. It's very important that they're Danish because he's like, screw the Swedes. We're, we're the most cool Scandinavians. And, Obviously. and yeah. you know, and it's on the other side, you know, we have you know, Swedish scholars saying the exact same thing about the Swedes and, and screw the Danes, right? There's, there's a, it's, it's just like this uh, ridiculous uh, propaganda. It sounds rival. like a very fruitful <laughs> scholarly endeavor. Right, <laughs> um, and he claims that that is probably uh, or that is what they would do uh, to go into berserker rage to 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 eat these mushrooms or ingest them. Okay, but first of all, is it established that this berserker rage actually existed, or is that no. also open to interpretation? That is also open to interpretation, okay. but there are some re- reasonable reasons to believe that that there was. Okay. Uh, maybe not berserker rage, but berserker dance. Um, a, uh, a colleague and friend of mine named uh, Roderick Dale uh, has written a thesis on on berserker rage, and his theory is that it's actually like ritual war dances that we're dealing with here. It's not, you know, a frenzy in war as such. Oh, so it's more um, like a haka of the Maori people. Yes. All right. Yeah, and to some to some extent, like, and this this is again very natural because we see that with warriors across the planet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You 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 have war dances. You you have rituals that that will psych you up for war. Right. Um, and of course, the Scandinavians would have that too. So that that makes perfect sense. Um, what doesn't make sense is to go into battle uh, high on mushrooms. 
<laughs> this doesn't make sense. Like, uh, why would you want to do that <laughs> in the first place? Um, you want to get your adrenaline pumping so that you you are really, uh, uh, you know, you, you, your senses are heightened, right? That's what the adrenaline is Yeah, for, I read that right? they drank booze before, and that also didn't yeah. make a lot of sense. Like, who would go no. completely smashed into battle? Exactly. Or am I wrong? <laughs> I, 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 you know... You can't discount that some might have been drunk or, you know, high on something going into war. But then I, I doubt that that would be in a ritual situation that, that, that they would have ingested that. I'm, I'm sure that that would have been, you know, to, uh, to deal with their nerves or something like that. Just like you see it with modern warfare. You see uh, soldiers high on cocaine and, and, and that kind of stuff. And those are usually the ones who die. Right, I mean, like those are the ones to die the, to die first because uh, they, there's there's the sensitivity towards what happens in, in war uh, um, is of course um, dulled, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and and you there's there's a gr- much higher uh, risk of making mistakes of various kinds when you're you know when you're not fully present, right? So that also in in you know in terms of war translates to dying quicker. You know, um, so I doubt that these these uh, Scandinavian warriors would have ingested any kind of uh, psychotropic uh, uh, um, uh, drinks or, or foods or whatever. But, and then we get back to the magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, they grow in cow dung in, in the fields of, of Scandinavia oh, as they do in many other wow. places. They're, Another reason they're pretty, to visit. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> if you want to go out and <laughs> pick, I, pick them, I guess. So, so what I'm saying is that it is th- that psilocybin mushrooms are pretty easily available, actually, uh, in, in Scandinavia, as, as they are elsewhere in, in humid climates. Um, um, and the, what we also know um, from archaeological finds, and especially from these very special graves of what we could call uh, religious, uh, female religious authorities in particular, uh, we find henbane and we also find cannabis in some of them. So are you telling me, excuse me, are you telling me that the Vikings were rolling up a big fat one from time to time? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, they, that's uh, uh, that's going to be breaking news somewhere tomorrow. <laughs> well, you know, Very unexpected. Canna- <laughs> cannabis has been used, you know, across uh, Eurasia for, for for millennia, right? So, so it's not it, it, it's 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 not a in that sense particularly surprising to find it in in graves in in, in Scandinavia. Um, I think there are two graves where we found cannabis seeds in them. And um, they, of course, they used different kinds of psycho- psychotropics, right? Uh, I'd say that these magic mushrooms and cannabis, aside from alcohol, were probably the things that they would use because they are easily available to them in the sense that the mushrooms, they grow right out there. We, of course, you know, uh, people in Scandinavia would know the, the the qualities of those mushrooms, just like they would know which plants that they could eat and which plants would be poisonous, and so on and so forth, right? So that's something that I would assume that they would have used for different purposes, probably in ritual. 
Um, and cannabis seems to have been uh, present at least with some individuals who uh, were, you know, very much from 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 all the other elements yeah. of their graves were were you know ritual specialists of some kind. So yeah, there, there was some usage of this, but I doubt that it was in warfare. It was probably more in rituals that uh, required uh, some kind of I, I again for lack of a better word like quote unquote shamanic travel or or journeying or, or something like that. Fascinating yeah. and very unexpected again. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I can uh, uh, expand your your knowledge on on Vikings. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, super grateful. That's uh, yeah. That's I mean. That's bragging material right there. You know, like next time I'm grabbing a beer with a couple of my mates, I'm going to be like, I bet you didn't know this about the Vikings. <laughs> um, anyway, we touched upon it a little bit already. It seems like the Vikings are having a big moment in pop culture right now. We have The Lost Kingdom, the show, plenty of video games such as Skyrim, uh, all the Marvel movies, Lord of the Rings obviously contains some of this Nordic folklore as well. Um, mm -hmm. I mentioned the Vikings, the TV show also. Why do you think this resurgence is happening right now? Um, the time was right, I think. Um, so, you know, in, in, uh, to a Scandinavian, it's, it's actually, uh, it's, it's not new, right? Because we, to us, uh, the, the Viking history is, is ever-present everywhere all the time. Um, actually to the extent where you can get sick of it <laughs> you're like did we not have other historical time periods that we could talk about <laughs> um, um, but um, you know if you look at the 90s um, in terms of like what did pop culture uh, attach uh, itself to historically um, in Europe well it was the Celts right so you have Braveheart and you know a lot of other sort of fictions about uh insular kilts uh, irish and, and so on and and they become sort of like the happy goofy uh um historical cousins that that we like to watch on tv um it also because you know here in the us the the irish had their moment so to speak of getting rectified as as a population group um, being the second largest ethnicity, essentially, in, in, in the U.S., um, in terms of heritage, um, the Irish, uh, well, started out in a, in a, in a pretty bad place, uh, being, you know, oppressed in, in the U.S., um, and then have gradually become more and more integrated into what... You know, this, what is the sense of like American, right? And and with that come also these narratives, right? Mel Gibson, uh, uh, freedom, Braveheart, and freedom, yep. yeah, exactly. And, and you know that that story uh, uh, mirrors so much of American mythology too. You know, so, so it it's it makes perfect sense in that way. Also, he's like and, Australian. He's not Scottish, right? Uh, yeah, he's Australian, right? And and uh, uh, but he's an yeah, American he's, superstar, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, so he's an American superstar. He has Scottish background. Oh, okay, and, okay. I, didn't and know that. I apologize to Mel Gibson for doubting his heritage. 
and and he's Catholic. Uh, yeah. So 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 all of this comes nicely together for for him to make a a, 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 a cute little uh, Celtic package, right? Um, and um, and so then we have a lull in in historical fiction for a little bit in the early two thousands. Um, nineteen ninety nine is the year for awesome movies. Yes, for instance, Fight Club and so on, um, but they they they're not historical, yeah. right? And that's when we then see attention turning towards Vikings, and uh, Vikings becoming the new uh, um, favorite historical child of Europe in uh, in in. It, it, I wouldn't say Hollywood fiction because it's not really Hollywood fiction, but it's 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 fiction that mirrors Hollywood in a sense, right? That's what this TV show Vikings is, and so on. We have a resurgence of interest in Vikings in England in particular, and all of a sudden, and this also goes hand in hand with this sense of like Scandinavia being the best the best part of the world or something like that to a lot of uh, anglophones in general like you 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 go into a bookstore in london and and you find a million books about all kinds of scandinavian concepts and like as scandinavians we're just like seeing random words that we use on a daily basis all of a sudden be becoming like this almost like a, a spiritual concept in in a book about how how you can best relax and how you can best enjoy nature and all that stuff and 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 it's just like a a, a feedback loop right where you know they keep uh, punching out these uh, books and uh, and other stories about Scandinavia and how Scandinavia is so awesome and how Scandinavia has figured everything out and blah, 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 blah. Um, especially mirroring in, in a place like the U.S., uh, the fact that it doesn't seem like people have figured anything out these days, socially at least. <laughs> uh, so, so, so it's a nice thing to dream about, right? And then you can also dream about that, that past, right? And again, and you said you didn't, you hadn't seen Vikings, but the uh, the show Vikings in many ways mirrors the American dream of immigration. Yeah, I call it a dream. You could also call it a mythology, essentially. Um, this the the the, the early uh, spoiler alert. The early situation in, in Vikings is that they're like somewhere in Norway, um, in a place called Kattegat, and. That's kind of hilarious because Kattegat is actually the sea uh, right off the coast of Jutland. And it is not an original Scandinavian name. It's a Dutch name. Um, and can I... Can I uh, can I say vulgar words on this podcast? Uh, not only can you say them, but this this type of language is encouraged. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So uh, the the word seems to mean uh, the asshole of a cat. Uh, oh, so, that's oddly specific. Yes, yeah, so it has something to do with sailing routes and and narrow uh -huh. passages uh, for for certain ships and that kind of stuff. And so the creators of the show Vikings, they were like, let's call the town that these Vikings live in Kattegat. Um, and I find that incredibly hilarious. Um, but uh, going back to what I was talking about, this, this particular situation is that um, they're tired of raiding 
these poor Slavs to the east. Again, we have the myth of like uh, uh, predator prey when it comes to like Vikings and Slavs. And then uh, uh, they're like, I've heard these stories about a land to the west. And then they go to the west and find England as if they, that didn't exist before. <laughs> it's just like ridiculous. The, the, uh, the, the creators of the show completely glosses, gloss over the fact that, you know, those people who become the English, they come from southern Scandinavia themselves. That there's been cultural connections from the 400s and onwards between Scandinavia and, and the English area because of that fact. And there was never a, uh, a situation where Scandinavians forgot that, that the British Isles existed. It has always been connection between Scandinavia and the British Isles. But here they discover this new land in the, in the West. And this is of course mirroring this you know myth about europeans discovering america uh, as as the land in the west and then it rolls on from there to you know essentially a narrative about scandinavians trying to colonize and being more or less successful and accumulating more and more wealth and riches and uh and status and and so on and creating awesome awesome myth of that about that right so what that is, is repackaging of the, 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 the immigration myth to the, to the Americas by, by Europeans set in the, the, the fiction of the violent Scandinavian as sort of like a, a white archetype. I don't know if, if uh, these um, the creators of the show had distinct uh, racial intentions here, but what they're reproducing is definitely sort of like the narrative of of the the whitest of white in, invaders uh, claiming the world around them, right? And honestly, I don't think that's a good idea, guys. <laughs> like what we're seeing is that that feeds into fantasies of of white su supremacy here in the U.S. Uh, constantly so um yeah again i'd love to see a viking romeo instead <laughs> okay fair enough <laughs> or um, a viking hippie pot smoking viking <laughs> i mean now we've paved the way for that kind of a character at least i guess yeah, yeah. we have <laughs> um all right the title of this podcast is you're trash so i have to ask you something a bit more trashy at the end. I mean, I've already asked you a bunch of trashy questions, I feel, but let's say even more trashy. Um, so if you find yourself at, at the Viking party, um, what was the biggest faux pas that you could make? Like, what was perceived as super cringe by the Vikings? <laughs> like, was it um, farting in public, maybe? Or was it telling dad jokes? Or was it something... Something else completely that, I mean, just asking, like throwing things out there. like Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, um, that people would just go, ooh, dude, relax. That's too much. So, um, uh, um, first of all, uh, I, I apologize that I'm not wearing my Adidas tracksuit. I actually have one because I'm thoroughly Euro trash myself. Uh, next time, um, if we get the chance to do this again. Time. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so... I would say, actually, judging from um, what we see in saga literature and 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 epic poetry and so on, the biggest the biggest faux pas is actually to get too drunk and then start talking shit on people. 
that is that is literally the the, the, the biggest uh, uh, social faux pas you could you could commit <laughs> in, in a Viking hall. Um, now, there's there's a little funny uh, feature to this uh, that actually s- seems a little backwards uh, com- compared to what I just said, and that is um, one social situation that seems to work out a lot is actually if you're not drunk and you walk straight up to the king in in the Viking hall and you start insulting him. Um, and if you can do that in poetry, then he'll he'll give you gold. <laughs> oh, so you're that, just like that, spitting bars at the king, basically. Yeah, exactly. Rapping at him, and then he's going to be like, I've been bested. Yes, he's like, yeah, that, oh, that, that's cool. Fire. I like that rhyme. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, so that happens with several, uh, in several stories about Icelandic uh, uh, poets who come to the, the, the court in Norway, and then they're like... Uh, let me just like be cheeky with you here, and then then he's like, "All right, okay, cool. I like this. Here's a gold ring." Now, if they continue doing it, then at one point they'll find themselves exiled and, and not welcome again. But um, but it is it is interesting to see that there is like this um, that seems to have been a culture of insulting uh, that was acceptable. Oh, like roasting. But, yeah, it's yeah, it's some so roasting cool. that we're dealing with. Yeah, um, we also find this actually in. Um, I think it's in uh, Jordanus's uh, account of the the, the Goths. Uh, so that's you know Roman uh, history writing about you know the Germanic tribes, um, where um, where there is a situation where this happens too in uh, um, in in the court of of if I remember correctly the Herulians. So so. And and here, you know, the the person it happens to gets like really frazzled and 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 angry and so on. But it seems like it was like a a, a natural thing for people to 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 have sort of like a little roasting session, and then we're all on good terms after that. Um, but yeah, uh, Odin in Halvamal, the, the the sayings of the High One, this particular poem that is said in the voice of Odin, that gives us all the social rules of the Viking Age, and we can probably trust a lot of them, if you ask me. Uh, he says, "Do not get drunk, uh, or at least don't get too drunk. Uh, if you do get too, too drunk, go to bed. And uh, when you're sitting in the company of others." Uh, make sure to not trash talk anybody. Um, be be polite, and also, you know, and when it comes to intellectual discourse, you should know how to ask and answer questions. So essentially, be smart about yourself. You know, don't 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 invite a fight, is what he's saying. So that I would say that's the biggest social faux pas that we're dealing with. Oh, this was such an awesome conversation. Um, I honestly, at least for myself, I can say that these were the Vikings that I never had the, the chance to meet before. Uh, so thank that's, you for that. Um, Professor awesome. Nordwig, thank where you. can people get familiar with your work? You have a podcast of your own, right? Yes, I have the Nordic Mythology podcast that I do with uh, my co-host, uh, uh, Daniel Ferrand, uh, the owner of the company of Horns Odin. Um we 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 sent out uh, weekly or biweekly uh, uh, episodes where we talk about Nordic mythology, Viking Age. We talk with uh, scholars, with uh, cultural figures, and tattoo artists, so all kinds of people who have something invested in in a t- time period. Um, and you can also find me on. 
one social media platform and that's Instagram. You just type in my name and uh, you can see the madness. Um, and uh, yeah, aside from that, I sometimes, you know, I have a website that's also just my name.com um, where I, I sometimes put out a blog post about something that interests me. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that's generally where people can find me. Oh, that's, that's super cool. Um, thanks again. And I hope we, we really have a chance to repeat this in the, in the near future. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. All right. And thanks awesome. so much for inviting me. An absolute pleasure.